0: The definition of harm, of course, changes as medical science progresses, and certainly prolonging agony is a form of harm.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network.
2: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a finely sunny Southern California.
3: And this is Bob Ambrogi from a always cloudy and rainy Boston, Massachusetts where I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, also another blog called Media Law.
2: I've got a blog called May It Please the Court and a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, our sponsors are SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms, at suntrust.com forward slash law, and Clio, which is a web-based practice management software program for lawyers, at goclio.com.
3: Craig, the uh, legal and social debate over assisted suicide uh, has been reignited by uh, a number of events over the last few weeks. Uh, in, uh, in the United Kingdom, a British journalist and author Ray Gosling admitted in a BBC documentary that he euthanized his lover who was suffering from AIDS. Gosling was arrested and now uh, the UK's Director of Public Prosecutions, has has just issued new guidelines regarding assisted suicide in England and Wales. Uh, recently here in Massachusetts, where I am, the death and death with dignity bill uh, came up before the state legislature, uh, where uh, Representative Louis Kafka filed a bill on behalf of uh, uh, a constituent of his, Al Lipkind of Stoughton, Massachusetts, who fought for legislation prior to his death uh, after battling stomach cancer.
2: Presently in the United States, three of states our states, Oregon, Washington, and Montana, allow terminally ill patients to end their lives. Massachusetts would be the fourth if the bill passes. And this controversial bill comes together with ethical objections from Catholic groups, doctors, and people with other disabilities. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look at both sides of the controversial Death with Dignity Act, assisted suicide, ethical objections, and current legislation here in the states and
3: abroad. Our guest today to uh, help us uh, discuss this issue is Barbara Coombs-Lee. Barbara is president of Compassion and Choices, a nonprofit organization dedicated to expanding and protecting the rights of the terminally ill She practiced as a nurse and physician assistant for 25 years before beginning a career in law and health policy. Barbara has devoted her professional life to individual choice and empowerment in health care as a private attorney, as counsel to the Oregon State Senate, as a managed care executive, and finally as chief petitioner for Oregon's Death with Dignity Act she has championed initiatives that enable individuals to consider a full range of choices and be full participants in their health care decisions. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Barbara Coombs-Lee.
0: Thank you so much. We can tell that uh, you're not from Oregon by the way you say
3: Oregon. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I caught myself as soon as I said that. I knew that. I knew that I had done it wrong. And I, I know I'll hear from all those people out there in no time at all. I actually pub- publish a column that appears in the in the Oregon Oregon Bar Bulletin, so I have oh, to watch uh-huh. myself. Uh,
0: <laughs> so uh, you should be able to I, say it.
3: I should be able to say.
2: It. <laughs> well, Barbara, we should get started here on the on the questions, and and I guess one of the first ones I have is. Uh, what? How do you classify uh, or distinguish between death with dignity
0: and suicide? Um, I love that question because I was going to bring it up. Um, in order to make sure that we're talking about the same thing, you know, language is so important. And uh, from our perspective, when a person who is dying... Um, is facing a situation that may involve unbearable suffering and is looking at his or her options and is looking for the least worst way to make a gentle passage from this life. That is not suicide. Um, There's nothing suicidal about those thoughts. There's nothing deranged about that person's thinking. They are rational. There's nothing alienated from their family. They want their family involved if possible. They want to bring their family close. They want to have loving goodbyes. There's nothing pathological or suicidal about that dynamic. And so calling it suicide... Um, uh, really, it disparages it, demeans it, and puts it in a category of behaviors that uh, are, are, are appalling to people, you know, and startling to people. So um, the Montana... Supreme Court did not call it suicide. The law in Oregon and Washington uh, specifically do not call it suicide and I might add that assisting a suicide, a genuine suicide by a suicidal uh, psychologically impaired person, is a felony in Oregon and it is a felony in Washington, uh, regardless of where whether a physician is doing it or any other person. so using assisted suicide to describe This rational decision, this rational request for a peaceful and humane death is a misnomer. It's using the language of a crime when you're describing a medical practice. So we call it aid in dying. Uh, You can call it assisted dying. Um, Those are the much preferable terms of art.
3: You're in Oregon. Tell us, uh, for those of us who are unfamiliar with it, what the law in Oregon says about this.
0: The law in Oregon says um, that... It establishes a practice essentially and says that a terminally ill, mentally competent person can make a request to the attending physician, that is the first person who is responsible for treating their terminal illness, for medication, um, for a prescription for medication that then they, the patient, could choose to take or could choose not to take um, at a time and a place of their own choosing if they uh, found their suffering intolerable. There are a number of um, guidelines and some procedural safeguards. Um, there are two waiting periods. There they have to be two requests, two physicians involved. The physicians have to attest to the person's uh, terminal state and their diagnosis, their prognosis, that they're not suffering from any duress or undue influence, um, that they have been advised of all options, that they are receiving good palliative care. Um, then the patient has to go to another physician and get all of that attested to again. Um, then the patient has to submit a written request um, that is signed by witnesses, who, one of whom cannot be an heir or a caregiver. Um, and then finally, after all that, uh, they are able to receive a prescription. Many of the people who do under, undertake that you know, rather laborious and, and burdensome set of tasks um, achieve the medication. They have the medication or the prescription in their possession, and they go no further. Um, the purpose is not to die. People don't want to die. Um, people want to feel safe. And they want to feel safe because they're in control and they have a way that they could escape a situation that they would find unbearable. And so once they have the medication or the prescription in their position, they go no further and they go on to die um, peacefully with their hospice care. Almost all of the people who make a request, like 98%, are receiving hospice care at the time um, that they die. So very few people actually end up dying by consuming, self-administering their life-ending medication. It turns out about one in 1,000 deaths in Oregon are by self-administration of life-ending medication.
2: Barbara, what are the objections that you're hearing uh, from the groups that we talked about in the the introduction, Catholics and people with disabilities and and, uh, doctors and so forth? What's the counter-argument to this process?
0: um the religious objectors i mean, have a a moral uh issue with it um it, it is contrary to their moral construct um for them uh we are we are not supposed to make those decisions um about our lives we're not supposed to decide the circumstances of our death and it and it's just simply this you know it's it's just not yours to decide And I think that that is a fine moral perspective, and I wouldn't try and persuade anyone who has that perspective to abandon it. Um, I do object, however, when a religious doctrine gets enshrined in a law and gets imposed on everyone in the nation, uh, people who share that religious perspective and people who do not share that religious perspective. So that's that. the primary um, opposition is really a, a religious and a moral one that is embedded in uh, doctrinal concerns.
3: Well, I was just going to I mean, is there also a concern that these kinds of laws uh, tend to discriminate against uh, the handicapped or against the elderly? That, that there is, uh, you know, is there this idea that this is society's way of dealing with the people they don't want to take care of?
0: That uh, was a concern and certainly a charge during both of the campaigns in Oregon and Washington. And I think that um, reasonable people who were skeptical about whether uh, such a law as the death of Dignity Act might have that effect have been reassured um, by the data that has come from 13 years in Oregon now. There is no evidence, absolutely no evidence, that anyone is persuaded Um, or coerced or influenced uh, to use this law, certainly not against their will. There is no disproportionate uh, applicability to vulnerable populations. The usual person who makes a request um, under the law is an educated person. Uh, It's usually a person in their 60s or 70s. Often a person who has been uh, battling cancer, cancer is the number one diagnosis, and perhaps is at the end of a very long battle, you know, sometimes over 20 years if it's breast cancer or some other, you know, cancer that can be ameliorated over many years. Um, and this is just a well considered judgment, um, you know, that they come to at the end of their lives. So, people, palliative care experts, hospice people, people who are concerned about vulnerable populations, for the most part, have been reassured by the data coming out of Oregon that we can legalize this, we can regulate it, we can make sure that it is safe and that it is rare. Now, that's not to say that the data is going to persuade people who are um, just adamantly opposed and no amount of data would persuade them that it doesn't somehow... Um, put vulnerable people at risk. But certainly that is an unsubstantiated claim at this point.
2: How do doctors deal with their Hippocratic Oath to do no harm?
0: Um, Different ways. I think that um, the definition of harm, of course, changes as medical science progresses. And certainly prolonging agony is a form of harm. Um, And there are several forms of good, you know, that physicians do. They cure disease and they relieve suffering. And when a person approaches the end of a long road of a battle with cancer, um, certainly the opportunities to cure the illness diminish, but the opportunities to relieve suffering uh, rise And this is very much in keeping with a doctor's ethical obligation to relieve suffering and to not abandon patients, Um, you know, because sometimes uh, abandonment is really what we're talking about. If a person is facing very, very serious, very, very difficult symptoms that will only escalate and their only choice is essentially to submit to unconsciousness. Um, and unconsciousness is repugnant, you know, to them for some reason. Then to not give your patient some control over their destiny. Um, you know, I see that, and many physicians see that as a form of abandonment. You know I was there for your chemotherapy, I was there for your radiation. But now that you need me um, for a safe passage. Um, out of this life, um, I'm not there for you. Um, I think that certainly no one is asking physicians to violate their own moral code. Um, but if you, if a physician himself or herself cannot uh, cannot give a patient what they request, then I think there is a moral obligation to pass that patient on to someone um, who will evaluate the request in a non-judgmental, unbiased way and uh does not have a moral objection to providing life ending medication if that's what the patient
3: wants Barbara, how do these laws uh, deal with the fact that that uh, you know medical science is always pushing forward and and there seems to be uh you know a, a tendency uh to to say never say never uh, in medical care uh, how do you how does a a patient know? Uh, uh, that uh, or how does the law address the the, the issue that that you know maybe a, a situation that appears terminal today isn't going to be terminal tomorrow?
0: The um, the law specifies that that this is a terminal patient. This is a person who, within reasonable medical judgment, is likely to die within the next six months. That's the same criteria that is um, that applies for say um, hospice um, hospice um, admission these are not people who are in a curative phase yet. These are people who have exhausted every potential chemotherapeutic modality, every potential radiotherapy modality. Um, if there could have been a transplant uh, that that time has long passed, that they would have been eligible for a transplant. I mean, these are these are not people for whom a The next drug you know is going to turn the disease around. These are people in the end stages of their terminal illness people don't they they don't want to die. you know these aren't people with a death wish um and so if there were a true cure, you know they would be pursuing it um, They do not act impulsively they do not act prematurely and you know, the estimate is that at the most, I know perhaps the people who take their medication take it maybe a week or two um, before they would have died uh, naturally in any case. Um, when, you know, one of the things that, that happens when people don't have control is that they do sometimes act impulsively and prematurely. Um, if they look ahead to what lies in store for them, and it, it looks truly horrific to them. They may feel a compulsion to act while they are still healthy enough to handle a gun or make it over their balcony railing to jump. And those kinds of tragedies are 100% preventable. If people knew that they could count on their own doctor and uh, a medical practice and their own family who could be with them... When they could no longer uh, do those kinds of things, you know, with a gun in the backyard or driving a car, um, but they could take medication uh, that would be right there, Um, they don't take those impulsive and violent actions early on. And most often, um, you know, they live longer than they would. They go on to experience a peaceful death.
2: Barbara, how do you distinguish the or, or, or counter the argument that once you're in so much pain, and uh, facing the end of your life, even, you know, in a hospice situation, some people would argue that you're not really capable of making a sane, rational, reasoned decision to end your life simply because you're in so much
0: pain. Um, pain, first, I, uh, you know, I want to clarify that pain is not the usual reason. And, and if someone were to make a request when they were in that kind of agonal pain, um, you know that 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 would be a very difficult situation because you know there's a 15 day waiting period, and and people just can't endure you know that kind of unbearable pain you know for 15 days. People uh, usually make this request because of an anticipation that perhaps their pain in the future will not be well controlled. Um, without submission to unconsciousness, or an anticipation of loss of function, really a a degradation of their ability to function, including the ability to think. Um, They don't know um, if that condition is going to befall them, but they want an escape route um, if it does. So that's what I mean about it being a careful and rather judicious decision. Um, I know that I will want this choice. I want to access it. I don't know if I will exercise it.
2: All right. Well, Barbara, we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about the Death with Dignity Act and future legislation.
1: Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and wading through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC.
2: Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Send up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goClio.com. Use promotional code L2L
3: for a 25% discount.
1: Coming soon, you can listen to Legal Talk Network shows and get CLE credit at West Legal Ed Center. Stay tuned.
3: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're back with Barbara Coombs-Lee, President of Compassion and Choices and and a lawyer as well. Uh, and, and Barbara, as a lawyer, I... I I want to ask you a question that perhaps is 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 a lawyerly question but uh how how do uh, insurance companies deal with this law in Oregon and in Washington uh and I'm thinking both of of medical insurance companies and uh you know life insurance companies uh are they required uh, because it's uh, a statutory provision to uh, honor these procedures, uh, it, or are there uh, are, are there consequences that uh, families may not be aware of? There,
0: in terms of life insurance, it really has no impact. Uh, when we were drafting the law in uh, 1990. For 1983, actually we drafted for the election in '94. Uh, we consulted insurance underwriters and asked them about the impact, and, and their uh, uniform response was: these people are terminally ill, correct? They're in hospice, correct? Um, that really has no effect on underwriting. You know, whether the um, the insurance policy matures of this week or next week uh, is really of no significance to an insurance company. But, so, so they
3: don't that, see it as suicide. Other, I mean, I understand what you said earlier about this not being suicide, but certainly there are some who might look at it as such, and, and the insurance companies are not. They don't see it that way.
0: They certainly don't see it as the kind of—I mean, insurance companies are concerned about fraud, you know, mean, they're concerned about someone taking out a life insurance policy and then killing themselves <laughs> you know, in order to— provide for their families or whatever. Right. These are people who are dying of cancer or Lou Gehrig's disease, and they're not trying to commit fraud on right. the insurance company. Um, right. Usually those uh, those exclusions, those waivers for suicide expire two years after the policy is written anyway. Um, so, But just to be on the safe side, both... Statutes in Oregon and Washington say that uh, no contracts, you know, should be affected by whether okay. a person uh, uses the Death with Dignity Act or not. So it really, right. um, that has been put to rest. Medical insurance companies, um, you know, it varies from insurance company to insurance company. Uh, the fair number of, in, of carriers and HMOs, PPOs are, um, uh, are religious. And so they carry through in their uh, policies, in their coverage policies, the doctrine of their religion. And, and, of course, the one religion that has written it down and actually enforces that doctrine is the Catholic Church. And all Catholic entities abide by a set of directives called the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Healthcare. So, if a person uh, receives a care or has their coverage through a Catholic entity, there are a lot of things that that are not going to be in there. You know, they won't be able to have tubal ligations or vasectomies or birth control pills, and they won't be able to have aid in dying either. Um, other uh, secular insurance companies uh, cover the uh, the procedures and all of the visits, the consultations and they cover the, the medicine. Um, the federal government does not because almost uh, before the ink was dry and the Oregon law, a bill um, sped through Congress saying that no federal funds uh, would be appropriated to any service that was related.
2: Or how do you ensure that uh, families don't pressure uh, people into ending their lives early uh, You know, just for the sake of uh, trying to ease that person's pain or what they per- perceive to be that person's pain.
0: And we just haven't seen that as a problem. At, um, the, the opposite is the uh, common scenario, and that is a, a patient... Um, Starts to think and want to talk about what the end might be, and it's the family um, who says, "Don't talk like that, Dad. You know, you're going to outlive me." And uh, you know, let's not talk about that. Let's just let's talk about making you feel better. Um, And the patients really have to show some fortitude, and you know, sort of gently bring their family around to, you know, would you support me if I did? And even families who are opposed at the beginning often say, you know, I I wouldn't do this myself. I don't really approve of it, but hey, you know, this is my dad, and I would do anything for him. And if he needs my support now, um, I'm there to give it. That's the dynamic that we've seen. Uh, We haven't seen any pressure um, you know, because after all, these people are dying. And um, again, a matter of a week or two, you know, if you're waiting for some kind of inheritance or something, uh, um, I, I think it would be a, a pretty outrageous and unheard of situation if someone felt that they couldn't wait an extra week.
3: Are, are there protections uh, written into the law in, in Oregon or in Washington that, that? That uh, you know uh, set up procedures of any kind to ensure that that the patient is the decision maker here and uh, and to protect uh, the patient's ability to control this decision
0: right, well, in my litany of the procedural safeguards, I mentioned that there were two physicians who needed to submit attestations uh, to the state, and one of those attestations is that this is a voluntary uh, request coming from the patient and the patient is not, uh, being subjected to any influence or coercion. Um, so you have two physicians who need to inquire about that and attest that it is not present. And, um, any coercion or influence is a felony, um, under the law. So I think that there are, there are plenty of protections written in, um, even if a family would be so inclined.
3: And then once the prescription is written, is it is it does it have to be self-administered or or can a family member uh, participate in that?
0: It would be okay for a family uh, member to help prepare the medication, to hold the cup, but um, it has to be taken. Uh, There has to be a volitional, a voluntary act. uh, You know, sucking on the straw, tipping up the cup, swallowing. You know, is a voluntary act, and. The law is that the medication is self-administered. No one can do anything to you; you have to do it um, yourself. So, yes.
2: Um, and you probably figured reasons. that you weren't going to get out of this this interview without a, a question about Dr. Kavorkian. What's the difference <laughs> in what you just described and what he did?
0: I think so many people saw what he did on uh, 60 Minutes, which was to uh, administer, you know, himself. You know, what he did was not aid in dying. Um, It was euthanasia. You know, it was taking control, taking control away from the patient and exercising control himself um that is very different that uh remains uh illegal in Oregon, Washington, Montana, everywhere where aid in dying um is legal. And we our organization Compassion Choices does not uh support euthanasia, does not endorse it in any way.
2: Are, are drugs, I mean, I've noticed lately that uh, I've been in the hospital to visit some people who've had some surgeries and, and there's a, a morphine drip machine and it has a button that the patient pushes, but it limits the administration of the, the drug and it limits it to a certain period of time. Um, are, are the drugs so carefully regulated that it's possible, f- that it's not possible really for a patient to get what could be a life-ending drug without the process that you've described?
0: Well, yes, I think so. Particularly the the what you describe um with well, morphine, with a morphine drip and patient, you know, self-administration. Um what happens in painful terminal illnesses is that um the patient develop a tolerance for opioid analgesics very, very rapidly. And so the problem of overdosing is practically never experienced. The problem of underdosing is the difficulty because as death approaches, it just sometimes becomes very, very difficult to keep up with a patient's pain to stay ahead of it so that there aren't breakthroughs. Um, when people talk about the great advances in pain management in the last 10 years, that's what they're talking about. It's not as though we have great new pain drugs. It's the same morphine um, that people have been giving for 100 years. It's the great advance was that they took the uh, control, that they took that button out of the nurse's hand and they handed it to the patient. <laughs> and it turned out that that was much more efficacious um, patients actually used less opioid analgesics and received much better pain control when they were in possession of that button themselves. It's quite amazing.
2: Well, we've, we've nearly reached the end of our program, and it's time to ask you if you would please to wrap up your final thoughts and uh, also give our listeners your contact information so they can reach you if they'd like to, to uh, get a hold of you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, the organization is Compassion and Choices. We're a 30-years-old organization. We have been dealing with end-of-life issues and end-of-life decision-making for a long, long time. And we have experience not only in the three states where aid in dying is legal, but we have experience helping uh, patients throughout the country and their families navigate these very, very difficult decisions um, at the end of life. We are in courtrooms, we are in state houses, and we are at the bedside. Our website is uh, all just spelled out one word. dot um, org, and our 800 number is 800-247-7421. And we are delighted um, to welcome inquiries, um, assistance from attorneys who are interested in, in becoming involved. And thank you very much for this opportunity.
3: Barbara, thank you very much for uh, participating today. We really appreciate your time and your uh, your thoughts on this on this uh, critical topic.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for covering
2: it. Well, Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows on LegalTalkNetwork.com.
3: And uh, a reminder that our shows are also available in the podcast library of iTunes as well. Uh, We will be back next week to discuss another great legal topic. Talk to you then, Craig.
2: We'll talk to you then. And uh, when you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer.
1: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and Jake Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.